What's up, everyone? This is the Nuts and Bolts podcast, and I'm your host, The One James, here with our lovely co-host, Airball. Hey, everyone. And Michael Kritz. What a do. And we're here to give you the nuts and bolts of the standard and pioneer formats each and every week for your listening pleasure, and maybe you learn a thing or two along the way. But first... Let me talk to you about the sponsor of the podcast, CoolStuffInc.com. Using code JAMES5, you can save 5% off of anything in the store, sealed products, singles, anything you could ever need in Magic the Gathering. They have it. Go save yourself some hard-earned money. We're going to get going, starting with the upkeep of today's episode. It's going to be our jargon, as always. And today we have a little bit of a combo play here. We're going to have two jargons. It's a bonus one. The first one is question, the next one is answer. So we're talking about questions and answers today. We're going to talk about question first. When someone talks about having, um, you know, asking the questions and your opponent having the answer, that could be something a little bit ambiguous if you're first starting out in Magic the Gathering. So we're going to talk about question first. That's going to be a proactive card or series of plays when you talk about answering the questions. Can you give me an example, uh, Airball? about a question yeah question is i have a board state i'm attacking and i'm going to cast ember cleave and you're going to die if you don't do something about it well we all know the soft spot the soft spot in michael crit's heart with the ember cleave um, is that still in your room by the way oh yeah it's definitely there oh okay that's what i figured <laughs> G- give me give me a question that you would ask in a magic game michael how do I follow up the Embercleave thing? Uh, so you can't. Uh, yeah, I, I can't. Uh, well, you know, for those modern gamers, since we never talked to you, uh, if you play Rakdos Scam and you play a Grief and uh, you evoke it, so it's not supposed to stay on the battlefield, and then you you uh, revive it with a you know a revivals type of spell, and now you have a a large beater on turn one, and it's going to beat your opponent's face in and you're removing cards from them and do they have an answer to stop their face from being beaten in before the game ends that's a pretty good question that's a good question to ask and it's a good segue for answer you literally said it do you have an answer and that's the next one is it's going to be two different ways to have an answer you can you can either be a noun or it can be a verb two different ways a noun is a card or series of plays which neutralizes a threat or something happening something happening in the game An answer would be, in your example, Michael Kritz, you say, hey, here's a grief. I revived it. Your opponent lost two cards out of their hand. Do you have an answer? And then your opponent goes, path exile. Or your opponent removes it in some kind of way. Your opponent has a lightning bolt, something like that. Something that neutralizes a threat is called an answer as the noun. Uh, As a verb, it is to play the answer. You can use it in a couple different ways in Magic. Um, you can say, I bolted your grief, which means I answered your grief. You can just say answered, and it just means you removed it or neutralized it. Um, you can also use the word answer when you're talking about counter spells. Just anything or play that neutralizes a threat. Give me your favorite answer, Airball. Literal counter spell. <laughs> I didn't even have to ask you that. Like I already knew that. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think my favorite answer would be Fatal Push. Right now, I think in Pioneer, I've cast that card a lot. Uh, what about you, Michael? Yeah, I'll just I'll split the difference. Honestly, one of my favorite answers: Drown in the Lock. <clears throat> that card, so good. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna put your Embercleave in a little pool in your room and just drown Ooh, the Embercleave please, in the lock. Too hot. Too hot for me. (laughs) Too hot to handle. Oh, no. All right. This is borderline not sponsored anymore. Okay. Um, All right. No. uh, Well, now you know what questions and answers are. Now that you know that, we're going to go ahead and go to the main phase. What are we talking about today? We're talking about heuristics and shortcuts. This is also might be something that you're not used to dealing with or thinking about when you're new to Magic the Gathering. And maybe if you are a little bit seasoned, you might not be thinking in these kind of ways. And one person that has been an influence, just one influence in learning about these things is uh, Paolo Vitor Dama de Rosa that has written an article with other people in conjunction to talk about certain things like this. And we're going to give them to you today. We have some 
here, about five of them that we're gonna explain to you folks. Some you might know, some you might not, but hopefully it's a learning experience for all of us. Uh, one of my favorite things about learning about heuristics and shortcuts is to see how other people that might be better than me think about their matches and think about their cards and interactions and sequences and how they play their magic games. And it's not always as cut and dry as play a question or an answer. So I'm gonna leave it to you, Airball, to talk about the first one. What's our first heuristic slash shortcut today? Yeah, I, I'm, I really love talking about heuristics and magic. I think that they're the first step to learning to play the game beyond just casting the cards in your hand. It's like level one play versus level zero play. And one of the rules that was most influential on me is Paulo PV's rule number one and the corollary PV's rule number two. So it's a little bit wordy. I'm going to read it out, and then I'll give an example that I think will make it clearer. Uh, PV's rule number one is that it is better to force a poor outcome rather than give your opponent a choice that includes that outcome. So that's tough to wrap your head around. It's wordy. Um, but basically, if you... It means assume that your opponent will always make the correct choice for them uh, when you put a choice to them. So if you can force them to do something that's usually better than giving them a choice that includes the thing that you could force them to do. And it's a mistake. Um, mistakes around this rule are um, made by strong players all the time. When I'm, I'm, when I'm watching people stream, say, Historic, and their opponent has Selfless Savior and Saram in play, and you have a Blood Chief's Thirst, and you have a choice about which of those creatures to target with that Blood Chief's Thirst. A lot of people will choose to target the Saram because Saram is the creature that they want to die. But that gives the opponent the choice. They can sacrifice the Selfless Savior and protect the Saram, and it's like you sac uh, targeted the Savior in the first place. So you gave them a choice about which creature to keep. And sometimes that's wrong, because what if your opponent has like a Core Spirit Dancer in their hand, and you killed their Saram, and they just let it go, and now they play Core Spirit Dancer and have the Selfless Savior in play? That's a better outcome for them that you could have avoided if you had just ta uh, uh, targeted the Selfless Savior in the first place. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, that's actually one of the, one of the things that I learned and it made me a better magic player is that same exact rule. And it's almost the same creature. The The selfless savior is, was just the main of my existence in standard for the longest time because I could just not, I could never get it into a place where like it was ever good for me. It seemed like it was always just so good for the opponent. But when you put this rule in place, and of course it's, it's not going to work 1 million percent of the time, of course, uh, sometimes sometimes it is maybe correct to to go after the ram instead of the selfless savior. But mo more often than not, you're going to say, OK, we'll kill your selfless savior because it could maybe five, five, two, three percent of the time be better for you to just let that SRAM die and cast maybe a second SRAM from hand or a core spirit dancer. And sometimes it's just better for your opponent. So instead of giving your opponent the the option you take that option for yourself and give yourself the best play. Uh, is there a situation that's come across you in your games, Michael Critz, where something like that may have happened? It doesn't necessarily have to be with just a couple creatures in play. It could be other decisions too, but do you have anything that comes to mind? Uh, not off the top of my head. And it's, uh, I, I know about this rule, and it's one that I think I frequently forget, so I'm probably going to be writing it down in my magic notebook. Um, but no, it, it's definitely a true thing, and I've probably won games where I this popped in my head at some point in the the turn or, or during the match. And it actually worked out to my benefit, but I definitely have been punished by this rule more often than, than rewarded. So it's definitely going in the magic notebook um, because there's some times where I just get so hyper-focused on, you know, I need to remove this thing, but the opponent also has a choice and I hope that they make the choice that doesn't benefit them, but I forget that they will always make the choice that will benefit them. So that is what I will say. I think this might, Another example might be in the case of counterspells too. If you know your opponent has a counterspell, it's often wrong to just keep not casting your spell. Uh, it's it's often right to make your opponent use the card and just cast your spell and just let it get countered because your opponent's more off, more likely than not going to take that option rather than giving your opponent the option to not use it uh, and use something else on a later play when it's the most mana efficient for them. So. Sometimes it's just better to force the bad outcome anyway than to give your opponent a potentially better choice in the future. Mm -hmm. All right, let's go ahead and go to PV's rule number two. 
And I'll let you explain this one, Michael. Yeah, uh, so PV's rule number two says, if your opponent could have forced an outcome and didn't, it's not the best outcome for them, so you should force it. Um, I guess like what this is saying for me, because uh, I'm trying to under also understand it, is uh, you're basically getting some sort of incremental advantage or value if your opponent uh, could have done something to force you into a decision point that you did not want to make, or for or they tried to force you into making a decision, but you had more open options, and because they didn't, you have an incremental advantage. That's how I'm reading it. I, I could be wrong, but I think that's what um, he is saying here. And I, uh, I mean, I've definitely, you know, it definitely feels great when your opponent doesn't see some some certain thing, and and they could have forced you into even more precarious uh, decision. So um, yeah. Yeah, Airball, go ahead and take a stab at it. Yeah, PV's rule number two is actually a, a corollary of PV's rule number one. So your opponent knows this rule that we just talked about, that they should force you to make a play. So if they chose not to do that, they did it for a reason. And it's because the play that they could have forced you to make is not the one that they want. So because they could have just forced it, like they could, they have given you an option to choose a line other than the one that they could have taken so that's they think that the line you could choose is better for them than the one that they could have forced and so therefore assuming that your opponent is good at magic you should take uh, take that knowledge and you uh, force the line that they could have forced because they don't think it's the best one right and this is the situation where you have a negate or a counter spell and your opponent has a thought seize and you know about it because maybe you thought seized them already you know about their thought seize you have a negate, and they have one black mana. They don't cast the Thoughtseize. And then you have to say, okay, what does that mean? PB's rule number two, I think, in this situation is saying, that's not the best outcome for them then. So you should probably try to force them to Thoughtseize because they don't want to, and use that information and say they did not cast their Thoughtseize. Now they probably have Fatal Push, that's the only other reason they would not cast Thoughtseize because it's face up, you know about it, and they also know that you have negate. So um, if as soon as they don't do it, you like you know the jig is up. So and and this is kind of the rule where um, it matter it ma it starts mattering more and more the better and better your opponents are and the better and better that you get as a Magic player. I think that these situations can come up more and more often um, if your opponent has some mana available and. Um, maybe it's their first time playing the deck or it's for their first time playing in a couple of years and they just miss something, then they just miss something. That's different, I think. But I think in this in this specific rule, the better and better the player caliber is, the more and more they matter. Yeah, I think uh, what this is getting into, and Magic players like to always allude to game theory stuff and they're probably not speaking into game theory stuff, but these are, I think PV's rule number one and two is kind of like, trying to relate game theory stuff to magic layman and and basically just be like these are decision making tools or heuristics or choice heuristics that you're deducing that your opponent is intelligent enough to try and make the best decisions possible and you're you're basically trying to put them in a disadvantage by taking advantage of uh you know knowing that knowledge or making them forcing them into the worst decisions possible so it's kind of just touching into this but it's kind of like the magic layman's ter term for like game theory type of things. Yeah, this is this is what learning about these things is is some, something that I like about magic too because it turns it more from magic to like chess. That you know yeah. that you know that your opponent knows that that's the correct move. So knowing that your opponent knows that that's the correct move, what move are you going to make now? Um, that mm -hmm. is that's what something that I like about magic for sure, and it it it, it comes up a lot more in like control mirror matches that. Maybe maybe your opponent casts a draw. They, they, your opponent would cast a draw spell, like a memory deluge, on your end step, but it goes to the end step and it goes just straight to their turn. Be they didn't activate it because they don't want to activate it now, even though they usually would, because they know that if they activate it on your end step, it gives you the opportunity to use yours, and they don't want you to use yours, or give the opportunity to resolve a wandering emperor per se in response to them being tapped out on four mana. And they want that counterspell they have in hand for Wandering Emperor and don't have another way to deal with it. So if that yeah. Wandering Emperor resolves, they are in a really tough situation. 
Uh, yep. So they just choose to just let it go to their turn without using their spell. Do you have anything else to say about that, Herbal? Yeah, um, I like the comparison to chess. I think it's important to remember that chess is a game of perfect information, and it we, we have to point out that magic is not. Uh, so sometimes, it's always a good idea to assume that your opponent is very good at magic. But sometimes you know things about the board state that they don't. You know what's in your hand, you know what's in your library, you might know what's on the top of their deck if you're playing Legacy or something like that. So it's possible for them to make perfectly good decisions based on the information they have that would still be wrong if they knew what you knew. So it's not always the right idea to follow these rules hard and fast. If you have a good reason to believe that the opponent is not making the correct decision with PV's rule number two, then sometimes you just let them go ahead, even though the rule strictly says that you should force the thing that they could have forced. Uh, and we could also briefly just touch on Lewis Scott Var Vargas LSV's. One of his rules is always start the game knowing, thinking that your opponent is 100% a good magic player and will do decisions doing that. And then as the game progresses, use a sliding scale to try and figure out where their their game skill and knowledge is and, and then plan accordingly. So Oh definitely. All right. We're gonna go to the next heuristic here. When faced with a decision to discard a card from the hand, maybe from an opponent's card or from your own card, usually you want to be discarding spells and not lands. And here's why. When, you, when you're in the early to mid game and you have two, three, four lands in play and your opponent casts a Liliana the Veil and they plus it and it forces you to discard a card. If you discard, and you like your hand, you have three really good spells that you want to cast and you think that that will propel you to win the game. So you discard the fourth land because you think, you know, I have a lot of lands in my deck. I have a 40, 45% chance to draw a land. I'll just draw a land. And then you draw another spell. And then you can't cast a spell, or you can't double spell on your turn, so you just cast one spell. It gets answered by your opponent's card, and, your pup, and then your opponent pluses Liliana the Veil again. Now you have to discard another card. Now you have one card in your hand, you draw a card, and that's not a land either. Um, what do you do then? Then all of a sudden you just almost outright lose the game. However... If you don't discard that land and you discard one of the spells instead, you're now propelling your game plan. You have an extra land drop that you needed anyway. And now you can you can double spell around the Liliana of the Veil, leaving no cards in your hand, or maybe one card that you that you don't care about, the least favorite card in your hand, whatever it is. Your opponent pluses it again, you lose that card, but you've now played your two cards instead of playing your one card because you did not draw your land. Um, this is this is an important concept. And it, it, it's not just, oh, you got on. That's when you hear people say, oh, I got so unlucky. I didn't draw lands. My opponent discarded. No, I don't think it was that you got unlucky. I think it's because you chose to not discard your your spell and you should have made your land drop. Yeah, um, I actually did not know this heuristic, so this is a new one for me. Like this is the PV one and PV two, I've I've heard quite a bit in, in a couple of different ways and fashion, but I actually did not know this with face with discard because usually I'm the one discarding shit. So, <laughs> uh, uh, like I'm discarding my opponent's discard. So, um, no, this is good. Like it, that makes complete sense. And a lot, I I've been the person. I'm like I'm Rakdos gang gang. I'll go fuck if I don't have lands, and I will, I will discard my lands and keep spells and wonder why I lose games. So now I know this and the reasoning <laughs> behind it. So thank you for that. So you didn't get you didn't get unlucky, Michael. You just didn't mm. draw lands and you didn't, dis just you didn't discard the spells. <laughs> I'm just bad. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, I bet Airball being a control player deal with a lot of thought seizes and duresses and uh, Liliana the Veils and stuff like that. How do you deal with this? Yeah, I have been thought seized into oblivion <laughs> more games than I can count. That's, that's definitely true. Um, you know, neither of you fine people have ever cast a thought seize or a go no. blank or anything like that. No, um, I've, I've never but, actually, but I've when never people cast do, a go blank. I've never cast a go blank against you in a tournament. I've never have. Wink, wink. Not in a tournament. No, sure. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but maybe you have, actually. I don't know. I have. Um, but yeah, this is a... I remember back when um, Esper Doom was in Standard, oh, and we had this Yorian deck that was built around blinking um, Ravenous Rats, and uh, Acquisitions Expert, and Doom Foretold would uh, would trigger, and Davriel, for some reason, was getting played. 
And it was this immensely frustrating deck to play against because you so would just good. get hellbent. And if and the worst feeling was when like you had a card in your hand that you wanted to play, uh, but you didn't have the land to cast it because you already because uh, you didn't have the mana. And then of course the rat is getting blinked next turn, and the card is getting discarded from your hand. And well, shit, that sucks. But um, the worst feeling was when I played that deck and I was up against Teamer. And I had them hellbent, and they were about to die, and always, always they rip Genesis Ultimate Every off time. The top. Mm-hmm. Every time. <laughs> so this is like, this rule is kind of about knowing what your opponent's plan is, and like, how to work around it. The, the Thoughtseize decks and the discard decks are designed to get you hellbent, and the thing that they fear the most is the top of your deck, because they can't oh, do yeah. anything about it. Oh, so you yeah. want to put yourself in a position where the top decks are good when you draw them. You want to be able to cast the spell. Right. And w- one thing, I think against a, a deck that's just only discarding, I think I would just discard all of my spells and just leave my lands until I have like four or five lands in play. And then as long as long as they're not providing a bunch of pressure on me with, you know, really good creatures and efficient creatures and killing me in the process, which you probably should be doing if you're discarding your opponent's hand because you will lose to their top deck. When you draw the card you actually need, you need to be able to actually cast it <laughs> instead of discarding your lands and then you're you cast one spell and the rest of your hand gets discarded anyways, you need your top decks to be castable. And that is the reason why you should discard your spells instead of your lands. Remember that, Michael. I will, actually. (laughs) These are going in my notebook, my magic notebook tonight. Okay. (laughs) Is that also, you know, tucked in under your bed and you read at night? Every night before right you next sleep. to my Embercleave. I keep that thing on me. <laughs> well, we know where your Embercleave is. Yeah. Um, all right, Airball, what is our next heuristic? Yeah, these are not like... This next rule is not a hard and fast rule, but it's about the difference between game ones and games two and three. So sideboarded games versus non-sideboarded games. And the general rule here is that game ones are about card quality, whereas games two and three are usually about card quantity. And this is a consequence of the question and answer nature of Magic the Gathering. Um, In game one, your opponent hasn't had the opportunity to sideboard against your proactive game plan. So which cards you draw matters a lot. Uh, if you draw some, if you have something uh, plan that they can't answer, you're likely to just win the game on the spot because they can't deal with it. But in games two and three, they'll have brought in, if they have a good sideboard, they'll have brought in cards that deal with your proactive game plan. They'll interact with what you're doing. And if you just jam all your threats, you're likely to lose. So in game one, it's much more about which cards you have. But in game two and three, you can reliably have your, your cards getting answered one for one. And the winner of those games is often the one who has the, who has the last card in hand. So basically, when you're making decisions about... Um, whether to keep or mulligan, uh, you should be more reluctant to mulligan in games two and three because you don't want to give up cards. Just raw cardboard matters more in games two and three than they do in game one. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And of course, it's contextual with what deck you're playing. Some decks just thrive off the top deck, like say Mono Green and Pioneer, that you can just overwhelm them with card advantage no matter, and you can come back no matter how far behind you are with a Storm the Festival into a couple of Planeswalkers or whatever, um, or maybe some combo decks where you just need to get there at the end of the game, and maybe you're playing a... maybe Or maybe you're playing a burn deck where it, you don't need to... It, your opponent's life total matters more than the amount of raw card advantage you have. But still, that comes up even when you're playing mono red, even when you're playing mono white, even when you're playing a combo deck. You want to be able to have more cards than your opponent because... Say, you know, you're playing a combo deck. Your opponent knows your combo. Your opponent's trying to kill you or answer your combo as fast as possible. But what if you're keeping up with card advantage with them? What if you are sideboarding into a game plan that is um, that is more two-for-ones? Uh, if you need to know what a two-for-one is, you can look at one of our previous episodes. We talk about that uh, in our jargon. But what if you boarded into a... Uh, into, I, I know that there is a Lotus Field deck in Pioneer, and they play Leer. Disciple of the Drowned, I believe it's called, mm-hmm. to be able to recycle their spells back out of the graveyard, and they utilize that card more in post-board games than they do than they do in game ones. Why is that? Because they want to up the card advantage and, and up the utility in their games two and three uh, outside of being in game one, because they already know you're going to deal with their hand. They already know they're going to try to stop the combo. 
but what if you recast the spells out of your graveyard afterwards? I think that's one of the um, one of the great game plans from t- games two and three than game ones. Uh, what do you have to say about this little little heuristic, Michael? Yeah, um, I mean, this is a new one to me too. This is weird because like normally I don't get new new heuristics. Like it's just I usually know most of them, and so this has been a great episode for my learning. I'm not trying to pretend I know all things. Um, yeah, I, I think I mean game ones. We know that you just want to have your the the um, configuration of your you know the of whatever your deck is trying to accomplish. It should be the best it can be in game one because it's very proactive. Like this is this heuristic is saying in game two and game three, it's about quantity, uh, which you know, uh, reiterating Airball's um, <clears throat> point that you don't want to be discarding down to hand size. Uh, or not, you don't want to be disc. Sorry, you don't want to be mulliganing. Rather, you don't want to mulligan and lose uh, your card um, quantity, um, unless you know what you. If you're discarding down to card quantity, that you have such a powerful um, answer or way to deal with your opponent's resources that it's worth doing. So, like for instance. If you have Leyline of the Void, right, and you're playing against Grease Fang, um, you know you're shutting them off, but you're shutting them off through a whole pool of cards that they're relying on. So that generally, you know, in a pseudo virtual way, you're removing, you know, their access to cards. Um, same thing with, you know, uh, what J- the one Jam was speaking into in Lotus Field. If you're able to kind of deal with their land that's producing a whole bunch of mana resources so they can't draw as many cards throughout a game. That's another way that you're limiting their um, their card draw, which is limiting the resources, so the quantity goes down. I haven't thought of like sideboarding decisions from that standpoint, but now that we're speaking into it, it's kind of the gears are turning, and I understand this concept. And so, yeah, I, I completely agree. These are the things that you're looking for. So sometimes it doesn't directly mean, oh, I'm 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 I am sideboarding into more card draw from my deck. Sometimes you're sideboarding into things that limit your opponent's resources and ways to deal with you. Um, and just by doing that alone, you're, you are removing their access to cards or resources, which will behoove you winning the game because you'd be the, be the last one with resources. And that doesn't always just mean raw card advantage. Yeah, that was an, ex- that was an excellent point to make. Um, in the case of Leyline in the Void against a Dredge deck or something, or in the case of Damping Sphere against Lotus Field, or, or you know, just things that just stop your opponent's game plan is gaining cards because your opponent loses out on their on a specific card pool, especially if their deck really does a deep dive into whatever uh, whatever game plan they're doing. If they're utilizing their graveyard or utilizing a land to create more mana, so uh, that was a good, really good point, Michael. So we're going to talk, I'm going to let you have the floor again, Michael, talking about our next one. I know, extra floor time for Michael here. Oh Um, my god! Let's go to the next heuristic uh, and or shortcut here, Michael. Yeah, uh, so this is one I kind of brought to the table, but uh, this one, and this is one that like PV has talking into, Seth Banfield, LSV, many people, but uh, this one is think out your whole turn when... uh, Think out your whole turn, then you start playing your cards or sequencing your cards throughout your turn. So by doing this, you limit the amount of information an opponent knows about your hand. If you stop and think every time you play your cards, this gives the opponent a ton of info through slow sequencing and pausing to make multiple decisions at each stopping point. Like, you know, whether or not to play a land before attacking. So by thinking out your whole turn and kind of smoothly sequence by slowly sequencing your your hand and your cards you limit the information that you're giving to your opponent because you're not stopping and thinking like if you start your turn by stop thinking of which land to play you've just let your opponent know that you may have anywhere from two to three lands so they can kind of like kind of tell the texture of your hand because you thought you know long about how you're going to play your lands and then you know if you stop and play your lands and then stop to think again you know, now they're trying to figure out why did you play your land? Why are you thinking through two or, you know, why are you taking another 15 to 20 seconds to think about what you're going to play proactively? Well, now they can kind of figure out maybe you have two to three uh, proactive things that you can do or questions. And then you go into your attacks, your attacks, you know, are over. You go to your main phase, you stop and things like, oh, they have something that they want to do in their main phase. So now I can like, you start giving them all this free info 
through process of elimination, through your slow plays. But if you're able to think during your opponent's turn and then come back to your turn and start sequencing one after the other, like you could probably take a little bit of time to play your first land and then sequence the rest of your turn. But if you stop and think each time, you're just offering free information to your opponent, where if you play smoothly, concisely, and throughout your whole turn, your opponent can't guess the texture of your hand because you are playing your land, then you play your creature, you attack, you go to your second main phase, you play something, uh, or you withhold the mana and pass the turn. So now the opponent's like, well, I can't tell if they don't have enough answers or have enough questions or like proactive things or that they're saving mana so that they can deal with me when I play my turn. Um, so that is kind of what I'm speaking to. And I'm still guilty of this. And I still, it's something I consistently have to think about and work on that I don't stop every time I see a new set of cards or if I do a card draw spell. In general, you kind of want to know what your game plan is and what moves you're taking to go through that so that when you do draw cards or have a different, um, different information presented to you, you can kind of continue smoothly throughout your turn. No one's really perfect at this. Perfect at this. Pros also have a hard time at this. So it's just something to always keep in mind uh, to limit the information your opponent knows. Yeah, Airball, what do you have to say about this one? Yeah, I, I will say that this is something that Arena has made a lot easier for me. Um, it's a lot easier when there's not someone staring you down. There's no judge telling you, move now. Uh, no slow play warnings on Arena to just think out your whole turn and then execute it very quickly with a bunch of, uh, you know, with just mouse actions. Um, that is something I think I'm good at on Arena, but it's something that I've had a really hard time adjusting to in paper <laughs> because when you're sitting across from another person mm -hmm. whose time you, like, when, when you know you're wasting a real person's time by thinking, the pressure on you to, like, okay, I'm going to play a land and then I'll think about what I do next. Okay, I'm going to play my creature and then I'll think about what I'm going to attack with in combat. And then, oh, I'm going to play my card draw spell and then I'm going to think about what cards I want to take with that card draw spell. Um, the pressure on you to, like, just do that, to string that out without thinking about it all at once is kind of immense. And I remember uh, a video that PV made. I think it was a video, possibly an article, where he would, where he was talking about how judges would get called on him all the time on, like, turn one or two because he was planning out his turn in the way that Michael was describing earlier. And he's, he would get frustrated. He'd say, listen, no, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Why are you calling slow play on me? When I make my decision, I'll do everything quickly. But uh, I need to think this out so I don't leak information. Yeah, exactly. Um, the thinking your whole turn out and then start playing is is both good and bad. Um, for for me, so I don't get slow play called on me and things like that. I will I will do the things first that I already know I'm gonna do. Um, first, I already know I'm gonna play my land first. I already know I'm gonna play this one card first, and then the decisions will come after I do the things I already know. Sometimes you could play a draw spell and your decision could change, so you just play the draw spell first. Um, or I, I'm also continually learning how to how to process my mind faster when it comes to playing my turns. Um, I, I, I guess Arena has definitely done this. I, Airball is right. Uh, Airball, I mean, Arena gives you a ton of time. You can mm -hmm. you can think about your turn for a whole minute before you even have to do anything, and then when you play at one land, you get like fifteen extra seconds. So you you really get to plan things out when you do when you are in person, and you you have your opponent's eyeballs just staring at you, just waiting for you to do your play. It's a little bit a little bit of a different dynamic, but I do want to talk about a little bit of a different aspect with the think out your turn then start playing cards. And limiting the amount of information your opponent knows. I want to expound a little bit more on that. Sometimes you want your opponent to think that you have the card that you actually do not have. For example, in Standard, every single white deck for the most part is playing Wandering Emperor. And even then in Pioneer and Blue Eye Control, it plays a bunch of copies of Wandering Emperor. If you don't have Wandering Emperor, but you play your fourth land as a uh, and you have double white mana and you attack, your opponent now has alarm bells ringing off in their mind of you probably have Wandering Emperor, so I'm not going to block with this creature. But me, as the player, knowing I don't have Wandering Emperor, I don't want my opponent to block with their creature. So if we're both good players and I know that they'll think I have Wandering Emperor, but I really don't, 
and I don't want them to block me, I will want to play the land first before I attack. If I... Wait a second. Are you saying that there are times where they don't have Wandering Emperor? <laughs> no, they always have it. Okay, I'm just saying yeah. that the times where I don't have it... Okay, my opponents always have it. I don't have it. So when I don't have it, I want my opponent to have the same thought and alarm bells like, oh, gosh, they always have the emperor. Right. Um, so I'll play that fourth land first. It doesn't always it doesn't always mean just wandering emperor. Right. There's a lot of situations where you could do this. Um, you could be playing Grixis Death Shadow in modern and bolt a Academe's Awakening land because just to get yourself to under 13 life to think that after you do your play, you're going to play a Death Shadow. So your opponent might do a different play because you're now under 13 life because you bolted the land first. Uh, the, these are these are just little tiny things that can come up in your sequencing of plays that really gets your opponent to think about what your hand is based on your actions, even if it's before you attack. So usually it's draw a card, enter combat, do all of your attacks, and then show your opponent the information. But there are some niche situations where you do want your opponent to have that a little bit of information. Sometimes, say I have four mana and I have a two mana card that I really want to use. And my, I know my opponent has a really profitable double block. I have a three three. They have two two twos. They're probably going to block with both two twos. But if I play my fourth land and I attack, they think I have Wandering Emperor, so they don't block. But what if I have a removal spell? I want them to double block to remove their creature to get the two for one that I want, right? To For when they double block and I kill one, so I kill both. I'll play a two mana card with four mana that doesn't affect the board at all, like a Paradise Druid or whatever other two mana card you have. Maybe it's a one mana card, whatever. Leaving that one card as the only card in my hand that I want to use. So it leaves your opponent in a situation. If you're the opponent blocking, would you double block if your opponent just plays their fourth land and plays a two drop that doesn't matter and then attacks? You're more likely to block, to make the double block because you're thinking, wow, my opponent doesn't have anything. They have one card in hand. Okay, my chances of that, of that last card in their hand not being a removal spell is pretty high. The chances that it's not a removal spell is pretty high. They played their land, they played a two drop. I'm going to double block. But it put, but then that plays into what I want, and I'll use the removal spell on their creature. So sequencing your turn, even if it's before combat, can really affect what your opponent does uh, um, in reaction to what you're doing. Yeah, uh, two things. Uh, the 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 speaking into what we just covered. Um, you also need to. This is part of your opponent assessment, but. You also have to know that your opponent is smart enough to catch on to that stuff too. Uh, is something that you will do during that LSV scale I told you about. Is like how skillful, knowledgeable is this player? If you're trying to do tricks like the one James is speaking about, but the person's new to the format, and you try and do the wandering emperor trick, you might put yourself in a disadvantaged position because your opponent just doesn't know for some reason the wandering enter emperor exists, and they block in a fashion where they act like it doesn't exist. And you've now lost like resource. So make sure if you're doing like I would call like the sexy moves that you're doing, make sure that your opponent is is wise enough to, or or knows of these interactions. Otherwise, you're not doing the trick correctly. Um, and then the whole thinking out your whole turn, uh, then playing uh, your cards uh, in paper because I, I forget I play lots of paper. I, I don't play as much uh, digitally. But it is something that requires a lot of uh, work and effort to kind of get to the level of being able to kind of sequence out your whole turn uh, while while playing. So like you want to think during your opponent's turn, if possible, and also think about your game plan and lining those two things. So the better you, you you practice this, the better you you, you keep doing it. Um, it gets easier and smoother. So yeah, yeah. I, th I think we've uh, covered what we want to cover. Yeah, those the things that I just talked about. And this goes with what you said, Michael. They work more and more the later and later in the tournament that you get. The you're three and oh, sure. four and oh, five and oh, they'll start working a little bit more because you can you can take advantage of what your opponent is thinking. Now, you don't obviously already always know what your opponent's thinking, but you can put your opponent in in positions that gives off information that you want them to know, regardless of whether or not you actually have that information or have the card in your hand. Yep. All right, we're going to move on to the last one. 
and I'm going to explain this one, to think about your games in an overall game plan rather than turn by turn. Um, in the article with LSV, Paolo Vito, Domino Rosa, and a bunch of other pros that have played this game for much longer than me, they were polled and uh, to, to have the, the heuristics and shortcuts and things that they usually talk about in games of Magic. And the most common one, actually, was thinking in game plans rather than thinking turn by turn. And I think this is one of the most important ones, if not the most important one. And I, I, I give it to you like this. If you are a, let's say you're an aggro deck and you're playing against a control deck, the game plan is fairly simple. You want to be able to kill your opponent. And you're saying, okay, I'm playing an aggro deck. I want to kill my opponent in every matchup. That's a little bit of a different ask. Against a control deck, yes, you want to kill them before they play their sweeper or play their huge lifelink creature and steal the game from you. Against a mid-range opponent, you might want to kill them in a diff in different ways, take advantage of the fact that they're not playing like as many um, as many threats, might, might be playing a little bit more removal, so they might be, not be playing as many threats, so you can remove their threats and still get in for damage. Your game plan's probably different against other aggro decks. Usually in aggro mirrors, your game one person's going to be the beatdown, and then the other person's going to be the control deck, but they're both playing aggro decks. You might have an aggro deck with a bunch of Skyclave Apparitions and Brutal Cathars in it because you want to be good against other aggro decks, whereas a different aggro deck could be mono red and they want to Embercleave you with Anax and Torbran and Burn Spells and Lightning Strike and, and different things like that. So it, it's really important to think, what is your game plan overall instead of thinking about your games turn by turn? What I mean by that is your opponent plays a creature on turn two. You're like, okay, well, what do I do in response to this creature? Okay, I do this play. Then on turn three, your opponent has a pl another play. And then you say, okay, what do I do now? Instead of, you do want to be able to re reassess, a, reassess your game plan throughout the game, but you do want to have a central overall core game plan in each matchup that you play against and, and, and make decisions in those games based around the game plan. If your game plan against a counterspell deck is to kill them, okay then. You need to make decisions in your games that say, okay, I don't care if you counterspell me, I need to play my cards anyway, instead of waiting forever to play around the counterspells. Um, can you explain that a little bit? I, I, I might have explained that good or bad, I'm not sure, but can you uh, enlighten us a little bit more on this airball? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that you're a lot more likely to win games of magic when all of your actions and all of your decisions are like working in concert with each other to achieve the same thing. Um, one of the best examples I can think of this is actually uh, weirdly mono red. So like you usually think of mono red as like having the most obvious proactive plan possible, right? Like you just slam creatures on the board, uh, get your opponent dead as quickly as possible. How much thinking is there really? But like, I encourage you to watch some people, some really good Magic players play Burn. Because they're already counting how many points of damage they have in their opening hand to go face. And they're evaluating whether to spend that Burn spell on an opponent's creature or at their face. Depending on whether or not they know, three or four turns down the line, how, what life total their opponent is going to be at. Um, you see a lot of players pick up a burn deck for the first time and they think, oh, I guess I'll shock their creature uh, because it might help my creature get in the future. Or I guess I'll shock face because I don't think their creature matters that much. But the really good players will actually know because they'll have seen three or four turns down the line whether something is likely to be important and how much damage they're going to need in hand to get their opponent to zero. So their game plan is not kill the opponent as much as it is get the opponent to very specifically zero or less life those sound like the same thing but like one is just like try your best to hit your opponent as hard as you can and the other is get them dead yeah um yeah i, I you know i agree with what airball is saying and, and i've i've seen what he you're speaking into that pros kind of count all that out from the opening game plan and and, and or opening hand and, and notice that how airball specifically said you know what the texture of the game looks like based off the opening hand. Yes, your game, your your deck may have certain game plans that it wants to execute, but if those aren't landing up onto what you're drawing for your first seven, uh, for your opening hand, and even though your deck is designed to do something specifically, sometimes you know, hopefully your deck has other game plans it can it can kind of do. And if that's what your hand is telling you, those are game plans you should probably divert your resources into 
because it's the most synergistic and efficient way to kind of win the game. Uh, the reason I'm saying these things is uh, because it is very hard as a human and during multiple games of Magic uh, to try and win the game from a micro level. Like, it's hard to like try and StarCraft this game by micro decisions to to have you win the game. Like, yes, you should, you know, sometimes ink out every little detail and uh, thought decision and processy that you can to win the game. However, your our human brains aren't really designed that way. And it's it's a lot easier to formulate a game plan from a macro view and align all your actions towards that. And that's how you see a lot of these pros do so well and do these amazing, like, plays that seem to come out of nowhere. And it's not because, you know, in some cases, it's like they're brilliant and they are brilliant people, but they've just made sure that their game plan opened up for possibilities like that because they projected it from the from the get-go. And it's a lot easier on your mind to project these kind of strategies from the bigger level. So it's like, okay, usually my hand's about control, but what I have opened up my hand is like these planeswalkers that create a whole bunch of like creatures and can beat my opponent's face in while I counter some of their stuff, which isn't normally the game plan of like, oh, it looks like my hand as a control player can win by, win by turn five or turn six. Although my deck is normally designed to win by turn 13. It's like, well, that's not what your hand's telling you. And now you look more brilliant of like, how did that control player like kill that opponent in like turn six? It's because you you, you, you um, kind of planned it accordingly from the opening of your hand. And so that's how you free up a lot of your brain space so that you can make those micro decisions when they matter in the game, but you just need to have a general game plan so that you can free up a lot of this stuff. And that's how uh, this helps you with longevity. It helps you with your win percentage. Um, just so many ways. So that, that's why this concept is so such a major thing that's being told across uh, the spectrum of all the pros. Right. And I think that's the biggest thing to take away from learning about heuristics and shortcuts is it really does shortcut your brain in after you learn these things and you they become second nature, you you no longer have to use energy thinking about whether you should kill a this creature or not whether you should kill a different one, because you know the heuristic, you should make the decision that's best for you rather than to give your opponent the option. So then you just kill the creature that you care about. Now, then you already know when you're facing against a discard spell, I need to discard my spell. So you just do it right away without even thinking. It becomes second nature, and it's also the usually the correct play to do. You, um, speaking about more in-game plans, I'm, I was playing a mid-range deck today, and I'm going to talk about sideboarding a little bit, sideboarding game plans. You've seen back back in the day, and I say back in the day, but probably like four or five years ago, you, you've seen certain decks in control matchups board in a card like Legion Warboss uh, post-sideboard because your opponent's taking out all of their removal spells in the matchup. So you're going to have a card, a creature that's going to kill them by turn five or six because they are not going to have an answer. And you know that. So your game plan post-board is to kill them with Legion Warboss. So you'll have four Legion Warboss in your sideboard and your opponent boards out all of their removal spells and you get the win for basically free if you draw that card on turn three. A little bit of an opposite situation. It's still a game plan. I'm playing a mid-range deck. I was playing against an aggro deck and my game plan against other aggro decks is to become a control deck. A good part about mid-range is you can become an aggro deck against control and become a control deck against aggro. You're not the best at both, but you can utilize both strategies. Now, since I was playing against an aggro deck, I boarded out almost all of my creatures, all of my win conditions. And the only things, the only creatures I had in my deck was a couple wandering emperors and um, like a couple wedding announcements and another planeswalker or something. I think it was like an archangel of wrath that one of the new cards that came that came out. And I said, I'm going to, need to remove all of their stuff and I'm going to win the game with wandering emperor. Like, that's how I'm going to win the game. I'm going to win them with Wandering Emperor, and I'm going to win with Archangel of Wrath, and that's it. I'm going to remove everything else. I'm a mid-range deck. I'm not a hard control deck, but I became a hard control deck in that match, and I won the game exactly how I said. It was a two two twos from Wandering Emperor and an Archangel of Wrath. <laughs> and so I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. Also, how brilliant did was this live on 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 it was, stream? It was live on stream today, actually. Yeah, and and so like what I'm saying right now is like how brilliant did your chat think they that you were? You're like, no, it wasn't that like you know five head brilliant. It's like I just enacted a different 
macro level game plan and your chat's like the one james is wild he's so good it's like i i that was the only plan i had i know that, <laughs> I, mean, I mean yes i'm, I'm a god i'm a god tier no, player not. yeah no i'm really not I'm, re I'm really not but i i wanted to do that sometimes you do you enact a game plan it just freaking fails like your opponent just boards into something else that you weren't aware of or whatever but um that's what i wanted to do and i said i'm going to win this way and i and it ended up working out i don't know if they caught it or not i don't know but um that's just another example of thinking in overall game plans and thinking turn by turn even when you're sideboarding so anyways um we're about to close here but do you have any other any other closing thoughts about heuristics and shortcuts and how they've helped you airball uh, I just think the macro level lesson here is that there's always more to learn about magic than you think. And the most the most time I've spent improving the most in magic has been working with people who know more than I do and who teach me rules like this. Um, practice is important, but in it, it only gets you so far. Internalizing that practice is much more important. So like learning from what you did and digesting it into things like this is the way forward as a magic player. And you will see a lot of improvement if you try to do that. Agreed with Airball. You can only play so much magic within a day. Uh, LSV has also said this, that like sometimes it's just better to think about the theory of magic and have solid magic theory so that you can apply it uh, because this allows you to project it through many games rather than trying to literally play many games, which is very hard to do. Yeah, all right. These Hopefully these help you listeners as much as they helped me follow us on youtube if you want to watch our beautiful faces and by beautiful i mean airballs and michaels uh, if you want to watch our faces follow us on youtube if you're already here on youtube and you want to listen to us in your spare time go ahead and, and uh, follow us on uh, spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts follow us on twitter at nuts and bolts pod on twitter thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you in the top eight